Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. Have your Bibles open to Psalm 51. You'll find this in the Old Testament about halfway through your Bible. Psalm 51. And as we read this psalm, please take note of a few things here. Notice the way that sin affected the writer of this psalm. It affected him spiritually, but it also affected him emotionally and even physically. Let's read a couple verses here, beginning in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Skip on down to verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. Verse 16, for thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit. And a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, it's a beautiful psalm, but there's a great reminder built into this psalm that before you can experience the joy of God's mercy, before you can experience grace, before you can find salvation, you have to be willing to acknowledge what your sin has done. You have to acknowledge the cost of sin, The pain of sin, not only the pain to yourself, but the pain that sin causes to the people around you, and most especially, the pain that your sin causes God. My friends, we must be ashamed of ourselves for the way that we have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned, as it says in Romans 3.23. No flesh can stand before God justified. Every single one of us has committed deeds of utter immorality. Every person has disappointed God spiritually and morally. Every Christian falters at times in his walk. 
And nobody, no man, no woman, comes to God perfect of his own accord or by his own self-derived goodness. Without Christ and the grace that comes along with a relationship with Christ, we would all have to stand before him in shame. But thanks be to God who gives us our jubilee. That is a concept that we'll talk about here in a little while in our lesson. The most basic premise of the mission of Christ was to bring joy to the, to the world. From his first days, it was spoken of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now from the very first day that Jesus was in the world, to the day of his death on the cross, there's a similar message in John 15, verse 11. Approaching the day of his death, Jesus said this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. It was his daily mission to bring the joy of salvation. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now let's stop and think about that. What exactly was Jesus trying to say to that crowd in Luke chapter 4? Jesus never did anything by accident, after all. So when he showed up at that synagogue in Nazareth, and he pulled out the scroll of the book of Isaiah to read publicly in front of the synagogue crowd, and when he opened up to Isaiah 61 and read from that passage, he had a purpose. He had a point. This was not just a random scripture that he was reading that day. And what is Isaiah 61 pointing to? What is it alluding to? Look at the language again. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery, to set free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This seems to be an allusion to the year of Jubilee. So go back to your Old Testaments again. And in Leviticus chapter 25, I know you're thinking, well, that's not a book of the Bible I go to very often. But in Leviticus chapter 25, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, open up here and let's read about the year of Jubilee in verse 8. Now understand the context. This is part of the law that was given to the Israelites. That was God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They've just left Egyptian bondage. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. So if anybody can understand the joy of being set free from bondage, it's these people. So God is giving them their law. He's giving them their customs. He's giving them their holy days. He's giving these things through Moses. And here's what he has to say about a particularly special occasion called Jubilee. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. So count off every 49 years is what he's saying. 
You'll then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year. So after that, those forty-nine years have been counted. In the fiftieth year then, you will proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property. Each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the fields. So we don't have time to read the entire text referring to the year of jubilee. So I'll give a little summation here. During this time of celebration, debts were canceled. All slaves were released from bondage. Of course, keeping that in its context, you understand that in the law given to the Israelites, slavery was not as we understand it historically, but slavery was a welfare program that when you got into deep debt or you struggled somehow or a business failed, you were able to give yourself over into slavery to pay off your debts and then you'd be free. And even if Even if that wasn't the case for you personally, the year of Jubilee released all slaves. Fields also were given time for recuperation, and all property that had been sold at some point in those 49 years, all property was returned to its original owner, or at least to the original owner's family. All of this was intended as a metaphor to convey the graciousness of God, Jubilee was God's way of telling the people that they were free from anxiety and care, from the provisions of a harsh world, and from shame. It was a time of celebration. In this sense, then, Jesus is our Jubilee. That's why it's no coincidence that Jesus selected that passage from Isaiah to read when he's in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He is proclaiming to them that he is the Jubilee, the great jubilee. But our question for today is, how do we go from downtrodden sinner to joyful saint? Well, jubilee is always preceded by shame. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And notice here, this is in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Read a passage here beginning in verse 8. This is Paul writing a second letter to the Corinthians, and he's recalling some of the harsh language that he had to use addressing some difficult subjects in the first letter. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In this passage, Paul explains the spiritual process of transformation through repentance. At one point, These people in Corinth were mired in terrible sin, speaking in human terms. They were adulterers, drunkards, thieves, perverts. All of this is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But they somehow found Christ, and they were washed, and they were sanctified. 
They put away the lifestyles of sin, the sin that led to death, the sin that had encumbered them and found strength in true, lasting repentance. In every sense of the phrase, they were transformed by the renewal of their minds, like we see in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Right thinking had produced right action. And it was this tangible, observable renewal that so impressed Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. For all that had disappointed him about this struggling congregation, it was more than made up for by their response to Paul's encouragement. Now, as Paul says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 7, I did cause you sorrow by my letter. And admittedly, Paul knew that there were some harsh statements that he had to make. The problems of the Corinthian congregation were far-reaching, and they were very advanced. Their spiritual decay needed prompt and firm admonition. In the same way, our own lives often reflect a very poor grasp of the gospel message. When confronted with the truths in the Bible, maybe our first gut reaction is to, to lash back. We end up hurting the messenger when it's the message that's actually affecting us. Consider a couple things here by way of observation. Paul may have been somewhat hesitant about writing a second letter, only because he was so anxious about how the Corinthians would respond. It wasn't the message itself that Paul thought was unwise, for he says he didn't regret the letter. It was only in the sense that his emotions were conflicted. The gospel message often causes great shame and sorrow. Because in that message, we see the undeniable reality that we're sinners and that we're in desperate need of forgiveness. If the gospel doesn't initially cause shame, at least in some way, then maybe we're not presenting the gospel as we should, or we're not hearing the gospel as we should. Take Peter, for example. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a very powerful message to the people there. They were so affected by his preaching that in verse 37, it says they were pierced to the heart. In their agony, they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? His response was simple. Repent and be baptized, every single one of you, for the remission of your sins. And they were. At least 3,000 of them were. So their jubilee, their joy, their forgiveness was preceded by the acceptance and acknowledgement of their guilt and their shame. They were pierced to the heart. And they had to get to that point of being pierced to the heart before they could experience the jubilation of forgiveness. If you're not pierced to the heart because of the message of the gospel, if you have yet to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that it was for your sins, for all of our sins, but yes, for your sins that Christ died on the cross then you can't experience jubilee. You can't experience joy until you've been to a place of acknowledgement and honesty about the, about the price, about the cost, about the consequence for sin. Now, getting back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look again at what Paul had to say there in verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. It's not that he just wanted them to be sad, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance that the sorrow actually did something, just like in Acts chapter 2. They were pierced to the heart and they said, what do we need to do? They didn't just walk away from Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost feeling bad. 
They didn't just walk away from it pierced to the heart feeling like that was enough. Guilt by itself, please listen, my friends, guilt by itself is not the same thing as repentance. Just feeling bad about sin does not save you from sin. Just feeling bad about sin does not get you very far. It's only when our shame or our sorrow motivates us to change that that sorrow makes a difference. You were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. You were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. That's the gospel's perfect result, exaltation and joy. That was Paul's goal in everything. That was Peter's goal. That was Jesus' goal. Sorrow wasn't the end, but only the means to an end. Paul used the emotional response to the harsh letter to affect the heart of his listeners and his readers. When all was said and done, the momentary sorrow produced eternal results, and that's worth rejoicing over. A couple of things here before we look at verse 10 and move on to another idea. First, it is an interesting bit of linguistic playfulness that Paul would say that he's rejoicing over somebody's sorrow. What we need to realize in our own lives is all of the pain is worth the reward of salvation. A lot of times we fail to make a difference in people's lives because we don't have the heart to tell somebody what they need to hear. We're too busy making and keeping friends of the world to make our friends into Christians. True sorrow needs to produce repentance. The reason why the Corinthians are so admirable is because they didn't allow this spiritual setback to destroy them. But this isn't usually the case. More often than not, sorrow can produce just greater sorrow. I think that's what he means there at the end of verse 10, that the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world just has a dead end. It doesn't change you and affect you in a positive and useful way. But sorrow that's according to the will of God produces life. It leads to a joyful outcome. For proof of this, consider the difference between two people who both had reasons to be sorrowful, Judas and Peter. The night that Jesus was betrayed to the chief priests, both of these individuals denied him in some way. Now, Judas was the actual betrayer. He told the chief priests and their cronies where to find Jesus and what he looked like and how he would be identified. Peter, on the other hand, simply denied Jesus. He denied knowing who Jesus was or denied being a companion of his. But they both denied Jesus. They both betrayed him. One of them, in extreme sorrow and shame, committed suicide. The other one, in extreme sorrow and shame, cried and prayed, got up the next day, and was motivated to try harder. In the same way, Paul the Apostle used his shame to push him forward in his ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. In that passage, he calls himself the greatest of all sinners, somebody who really didn't deserve the second chance that he was given. Our goal should never be shame for self-gain. How uncharacteristic it would be for a Christian to shame his brethren into submission like Diotrephes in Third John. We can't hold past wrongdoing over somebody else's head. We can't coerce others by reminding them of their mistakes all the time. We can't manipulate the children of God for our own benefit. 
If we're going to produce sorrow in somebody else, it's for the goal of producing joy and repentance for that person. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 10. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. I love that. The idea of a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Repentance without regret means God doesn't just forgive us of our sins and then reminds us all the time of it. Hey, you're forgiven. Don't worry, you're forgiven and saved, but remember that one time you failed me so badly? Hey, don't worry, I'll forgive you. You've got all the mercy that I can muster, but, boy, you really were a bad sinner, weren't you? It's a repentance without regret. I don't have to regret my life of sin because it's been washed away. I don't have to regret it. Because for as many mistakes as I might have made, for as bad as I was, Jesus was able to handle that. He was able to handle that burden of sin. He was able to bear that punishment, to pay that penalty for even my sins. It's a repentance without regret. I go into my Christianity and I will go into my eternal destination without any regret. What an amazing concept. Once true sorrow has run its course and obtained its pure outcome, there is no longer a need to be sorrowful. That kind of sorrow brings forth repentance and an assurance that is only found in letting go of the past and handing judgment to Christ. The right kind of shame causes self-reflection, self-improvement, a rejection of sinful habits and vices. Like 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. It produces in us the expectation for eternal life. It produces motivation to live better today and in the future. It results in salvation. So getting back to the idea of jubilee. Unless we come to grips with our own sin... We can never fully understand God's grace. Back in Psalm 51, if you remember from verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. That's what makes the writer of this psalm so admirable. He knew his sin. He was aware of it. As one writer put it, this too is characteristic of true penitence. Mock penitents confess their sins and straightway forget them. Real genuine ones find it hard to forget. In the Old Testament, Jubilee was a time for renewal. People were set free and given a chance to start fresh in many physical ways. How much more then are we set free from our bonds when we become Christians? John 3, 5 says we're born again. Whatever sinful habits we picked up, whatever servitude we were under, we're given a chance to break free. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 says that we don't have to be slaves of sin anymore. We have a spiritual jubilee that releases us from our slavery to sin. Like the sinful woman of John 8 verse 11, we have the chance to go and sin no more. Be careful though. Be careful that you do not harden your hearts and stifle the power that godly shame can have in affecting change in your life. Like Jeremiah 6 verse 15 says, Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? No. They were not ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Don't ever get to that point. Let shame produce in you a repentance without regret. 
Let the shame that you feel for your sin motivate you and drive you toward Jesus Christ, not away from him. Don't go into hiding. Don't commit spiritual suicide or even physical suicide if you're at that point. Look again at Judas and Peter. They both had to face their sin. They both had to face their shame. One of them couldn't do it in the right way, and he gave up. He committed suicide. He destroyed himself. The other one faced it and became a better man because of it. So which one are you? What choice are you going to make? If you have any spiritual need, we'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. Reach out to Monte Vista. I or any of our members, we would love to sit down and just open up our Bibles together and present to you the gospel, which, well, is the good news. And it really is good news. For you, for me, for all mankind. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.